And it's a deep dive into Hunter Biden, Jeffrey Epstein, the origin of COVID, and more on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to our show. We push back against the uniparty and deep state and let you into the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com. Click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland, which drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. Now, I've got a lot of stuff built up, and we are going to get to absolutely, positively, as much of it as we possibly can this evening. So let's start with a deep dive into the latest in Hunter Biden, Kanakoa the Great, and he is great. He writes over at Substack. He's got almost a half a million followers on Twitter. He is an independent journalist. And boy, does he have a thread. Does he have a thread going on over there on Twitter? Here's how it starts. Breaking. Emails from the Biden laptop reveal a newly discovered Hunter Biden Maltese bank account. Opened by Burisma. Of course, that was an energy company that was paying him off a million a year out of Ukraine. So, newly discovered Hunter Biden Maltese bank account opened by Burisma that coincides with a $10 million bribery allegations involving Biden and Burisma as reported by an FBI source. Mikola Zlochevsky. Burisma's founder allegedly paid a $5 million bribe each to then-Vice President Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Zlochevsky, who faced investigations for money laundering, reportedly employed Hunter to leverage his political influence in order to halt the investigations. In 2018, Joe Biden admitted to pressuring Ukraine's president to fire the prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, who was investigating his son's Ukrainian energy company. Biden accompanied this. Biden accomplished this. Pardon me. Biden accomplished this by leveraging the threat of withholding a $1 billion U.S. loan guarantee. Okay? Do you by any chance remember this? Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had they were walking out to press conference. I said, no, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. (laughs) I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. I think it was, what, six hours. I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. 
Oh, son of a bitch. Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. They put in place someone who was solid at the time. What's the matter, Joe? Is he no longer solid later on? Just curious. Inquiring minds want to know. Kanakoa the Great follows up saying, in May 2016, Burisma executive Vadim Pozharsky informed Hunter Biden that he was opening him a bank account in Malta. The Maltese bank account. Not to be confused with the Maltese Falcon. That was a Humphrey Bogart movie. Anyway, Pozharsky requested the documentation required for the account opening, including a copy of Hunter's passport, a bank reference letter, and a utility bill. And they got the email because it's on the laptop. Hunter responded by stating, We are working on this. I was traveling with my dad and had my passport abroad last week. In the subsequent weeks, Hunter Biden's assistant, Joan Meyer, provided copies of Hunter's documentation as requested. Meyer also suggested providing a letter from Hunter's corporation, Owasco, to confirm his annual salary, asking, is that what the bank is looking for? And they have screenshots of all these emails. Joan Meyer, Rosemont Seneca Advisors, LLC. A Burisma attorney sent an email to Hunter sharing the address and SWIFT code of SATA Bank, the bank in Maltese, so S-A-T-A Bank. A few days later, Hunter's assistant sent Hunter's tax ID number and signature to the Burisma executive who responded with a confirmation, all received. In 2018, SATA Bank was closed for money laundering violations. In 2019, all accounts were frozen and investigations started for suspicious transactions tied to illegal activities. Auditors found in 2020 that around 11 billion pounds, pardon me, no, 11 billion euros, I guess, and suspicious transactions went through Satabank. So, this Vadim Pozharsky, this uh, executive with Burisma, facilitated the establishment of the Maltese bank account for Hunter Biden a year after Hunter introduced his father to the Burisma executive. And they got the screenshot on that. And then now infamous email, Pozharsky revealed that Hunter Biden and his business partner, Devin Archer, operated as unregistered foreign lobbyists by organizing a private dinner with then-Vice President Joe Biden at Cafe Milano in Washington, D.C. Which is weird, because Joe always said that he never talked to his son about any of his foreign business dealings, much less met anybody. What? Joe lies? What are you talking about? Kennecoe the Great says in a previous email, Pozharsky requested advice from Hunter on leveraging his influence to benefit the company. Quote, We urgently need your advice on how you could use your influence to convey a message or signal to stop what we consider to be politically motivated actions. 
Senator Chuck Grassley delivered a speech about a week ago criticizing the FBI for releasing a redacted version of the unclassified memo. Grassley accused the FBI and Justice Department of targeting Trump while protecting the Bidens, which is exactly what's going on. And look, you don't have to be a fan of Donald Trump to realize that. Because a lot of people have spoken out about this who are not fans of Donald Trump. And you know what? Here's the ironic thing. They agree with Trump. This is bigger than him. This sets very dangerous precedents. What the DOJ and the FBI have been doing to Trump all these years and what it's culminating in with these prosecutions. There are people who don't like Trump at all who are saying this. I just want you to know, this is not a Trump, Trump, Trump thing. Trump's right in that it is much bigger than him. Anyway, Canicola the Great continues saying the FBI source mentioned that Zlochevsky claimed it would take a decade to unravel the complex money trail, but he couldn't anticipate Hunter Biden leaving his laptop at a repair shop, which exposed his deputy's role in the setup of the Maltese bank account. Yeah, who who thought that was going to happen? That's a really good point. Yeah, they didn't count on Hunter leaving his laptop at a computer repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware, and refusing to go back and get it. So, in 2020, Ukrainian officials seized a $6 million cash bribe linked to one and only Mykola Zlochevsky, the Burisma executive. The bribe, consisting of $100 bills wrapped in rubber bands and held in plastic bags, aimed to stop an investigation into the founder of Burisma Holdings. Unfortunately... Evidence from the 2019 Horowitz Inspector General report, Horowitz, of course, the Inspector General of the DOJ, and the recent Durham report both support the notion that the FBI and DOJ are politicized institutions given the task of hiding the establishment's crimes while selectively targeting its political opposition. Yeah. CNN, and here's a screenshot from CNN even, saying special counsel John Durham concludes FBI never should have launched full Trump-Russia probe. Now, Marco Polo 501c3, which is the organization run by Garrett Ziegler, young man who used to be in the Trump administration, released a 630-page report on the Biden laptop with over 2,000 citations that thoroughly document 459 crimes, 459 crimes committed by the Biden family and their business associates, including 140 business crimes, 191 sex crimes, 128 drug crimes. And you can read this report for free at bidencrimes.info. But Canicola the Great continues. He says, credit to Maxis Copolis, 
for spotting the Maltese bank first and assisting with the research for this article. Now, Maxis Coppolis is, oh, i got to follow this. I'm not following this yet. This is a Twitter account called Ask Natalie Biden What Happened. Oh, my goodness. i gotta, I got to follow this closely. i got to put it on a couple of my lists. Yeah. Wow. So he links to the thread for Maxis Coppolis, the SATA bank and the smoking gun that Hunter had a bank account opened in Malta. There's the bank you're looking for, Congress, complete with SWIFT code. Good luck getting SATA Bank to cooperate because, of course, uh, they have been closed down because they owed over 76 million euros to more than 5,000 creditors. And so they have been liquidated. Oh, my. Canicola the Great continues, credit to Truth Ninja 316 for also spotting the Maltese Bank and assisting with research for this article. And then he says, Vadim Pozharsky, the Burisma executive, asked Hunter Biden to send his documentation required to open a bank account, passport, bank letter, and utility bill to a Pierre Gretsch pillow at Obelisk Auctions Gallery in the town of Attard, A-T-T-A-R-D, in Malta. So in 2020... Pierre Gretsch Pillow, the Maltese auction house owner that Hunter Biden sent his passport and banking documents to, was arrested and charged with laundering millions of euros. The police investigation began over a suspicious sale of an oil rig for Burisma Holdings. And then, exclusive. Hunter Biden's Maltese bank account opened by Burisma amid FBI allegations of $10 million bribe. Emails from the Biden laptop reveal Maltese bank account that coincides with the bribery allegations involving Biden and Burisma. And, of course, he's linking to his article there. It's one of these um, articles that looks like, uh, looks like Substack, but instead... It's uh, news, And he goes into great detail. But, you know, I've given you enough detail. And if you want to go to news, that's K-A-N-E-K-O-A, be my guest. So that gets us started. But we're talking about, hey, you're... You're doing that, you're covering up for Hunter, right? While Biden, Hunter, and Joe are getting away with all kinds of stuff. And the usual suspects, people like former Attorney General William Barr, are covering, aren't they? No, no. They're helping cover for Biden. They're helping try to put Trump in jail. So let me talk about that for a couple of minutes. First of all, William Barr 
lying about the Presidential Records Act on CBS Face the Nation. Here we go. Do you believe he lied to the Justice Department? Do I personally believe it? Yes, I do. And would you believe that... That he continues to claim that he has all these privileges and rights under the Presidential Records Act. Is he mischaracterizing the act? It, it, absolutely. Uh, the legal theory by which he gets to take battle plans and, and sensitive national security information as his personal papers is absurd. It's just as wacky as the legal doctrine they came up with for you know having the vice president unilaterally determine who won the election. The whole purpose of the statute, the Presidential Records Act, is was to stop presidents from taking official documents out of the White House. It was passed after Watergate. That's the whole purpose of it. And therefore, it restricted what a president can take. It says it's purely private. that had nothing to do with uh, the uh, deliberations of government policy. Obviously, these documents are not purely private. It's, it's obvious. And they're not even now arguing that it's purely private. What they're saying is the president just has sweeping discretion to say they are, even though they squarely don't fall within the definition. It's an absurd argument. They? They're saying it? Sir, with all due respect, the law itself is saying it. The court decisions themselves are saying it. All right. Let's start with... uh, Start with Mike Davis, who says, like the Biden Justice Department, Bill Barr, who Trump fired, is misrepresenting the law. Quote, the presidential records of a former president shall be available to such former president or the former president's designated representative. Unquote. That is a direct quote from the Presidential Records Act. Direct quote. They shall be available, period. Okay? All right, now. We got more. I got so many tabs open, I had to write everything down because I don't want to miss anything. So let's go over to um, Mark Levin and Jeff Clark. The great one, Mark Levin. I'm going to tell you exactly what he said about William Barr's prevarications. And also Jeff Clark, who's been a guest here on the Doc Washburn Show a couple of times. William Barr used to be his direct superior. Jeff Clark was an assistant U.S. Attorney General for two divisions. So coming up, we're going to tell you what Mark Levin and Jeff Clark have said about William Barr, but today it's a deep dive now. It's a deep dive into Hunter Biden. It's a deep dive into persecution of Donald Trump. It's a deep dive into Jeffrey Epstein. It's a deep dive into the origins of COVID-19. I mean, there is an awful lot that I'm going to do my level best to get to today because it's been a while since I've had a chance to get into all of this with you. And I can't just phone it in. You deserve the best, so that's what I'm going to share with you here on the Doc Washburn Show as we continue. <laughs> 
If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. You want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier? Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com. Or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. It was an honor for me to fill in for Mark Levin on his nationally syndicated radio talk show 11 times. Last time I did it was August of 2021, just a few days before 
the CEO of Cumulus Media announced that whoever didn't get vaccinated would be fired within two months. If it weren't for that, I'd probably still be filling in for him. Anyway, a great guy who really gave me uh, some great opportunities. Here's what he is saying out there on Twitter over the weekend. Bill Barr has been on every left-wing media Sunday show spewing his poison. He has smeared Trump more than he has ever criticized the worst drug dealers, arms dealers, international terrorists, terrorist states, or the Biden crime family, and the millions of dollars they received from our enemies, including communist China. Barr knows he's lying. He knows the thug prosecutors against Trump have acted appallingly. He knows all this. But on Father's Day, he spends part of his morning on CBS trashing Trump without any serious challenge. I think Barr is sick and getting sicker. So my friend Jeff Clark responds. Again, Jeff Clark used to be assistant U.S. Attorney General right under Barr. He says, I agree with Mark Levin. The most telling point is that Barr hasn't even seen Trump's defense. There's been no trial yet. No motions to dismiss, etc. He's just reacting to a one-sided indictment prosecutors put together. This is un-American, and it's an approach contrary to our Constitution. Amen, brother. Now, I want to check out, I want to, I want to share with you what Tom Fitton, Judicial Watch, is saying about Barr. He says, fact check. The courts disagree with Mr. Barr on presidential records. And so has the Obama Justice Department. See, for example, the Bill Clinton sock drawer case. Quote, the Presidential Records Act contains no provision obligating or even permitting the archivist to assume control over records that the president categorized and filed separately as personal records. At the conclusion of the president's term, the archivist only assumes responsibility for the presidential records. Presidential Records Act does not confer any mandatory or even discretionary authority on the archivist to classify records. Under the statute, this responsibility is left solely to the president. A lot of people calling Barr out for lying now. I mean, it's getting ridiculous. Now, speaking of Hunter, the great Greg Price, communications director for the uh, SFC network, 285,000 followers over there on Twitter, said, just wanted to wish a very happy Father's Day to Hunter Biden, currently fighting in court to reduce his child support payments to the mother of his four-year-old daughter, that he has never met, and that Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge even exists. Classy family, though, right? 
really classy family. Good grief. It's disgusting. But wait, there's more. Tom Fenton Judicial Watch, quoting Mark Levin, who said, if relevant law applied to Trump, Bill Clinton will be doing 50 years with his wife. Quote, Judge Amy Berman Jackson says the responding agency, the National Archives, the tapes were Mr. Clinton's personal records, therefore not subject to the Presidential Records Act or the Freedom of Information Act. The government's position was that Congress had decided the president and the president alone decides what is presidential record and what isn't. Levin said that Jack Smith, prosecutor on Trump, and the Biden Justice Department want to keep talking about the Espionage Act in the case of Trump because it avoids the Clinton-Sox precedent under the Presidential Records Act. Right now, Mark Levin himself, and he links to an NBC News article, Lawyer for Witness and Trump Documents Probe Alleges Prosecutorial Misconduct from June 8th. Talk about lawyer for Donald Trump's butler and body man whose legal bills are being paid by Trump political organization is alleging in court papers that a key prosecutor in classified documents case inappropriately sought to pressure him by bringing up his application for a judgeship in Washington, D.C., according to a source familiar with a... Ooh, ooh, man. So Levin says, the experienced and highly regarded trial lawyer representing Trump's aide is accusing the thug prosecutor's colleague of a criminal act that is raising his likely appointment to a judgeship as a reason to pressure his client to provide the government with its desired testimony. This is a big deal being ignored by the media and their so-called legal analysts like Bill Barr. How the worm turns, right? It just gets more and more disgusting. All right, let me go back to uh, Mike Davis. Now, Mike Davis, in case I uh, forgot to mention earlier, was a law clerk for Justice Gorsuch. He was also chief counsel for judicial nominations for Senator Chuck Grassley when he was chairman of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. So Mike Davis says Jack Smith, Merrick Garland's special counsel, got reversed 8-0 to zero by the Supreme Court in 2016 for a bogus conviction of a GOP politician. Now we learn... Karen Gilbert, his deputy, got sanctioned by a court and fired from a prosecutor post for egregious misconduct. And he links to the New York Post, the article about it. Top Trump prosecutor Karen Gilbert has checkered past, quote, sorry, sack of lies. Top prosecutor in the classified documents case against former President Trump was once cited for unethical behavior in a federal drug case, according to court records. 59-year-old Karen Gilbert, who now is a leading role in special counsel Jack Smith's prosecution of former President Trump, 
was forced to resign as chief of the narcotics section of the Miami U.S. Attorney's Office for her role and secretly taping a defense lawyer in 2009, according to court papers. The case involved Dr. Ali Shagan, a Florida family medicine physician who faced 141 counts of illegally dispensing pain medication. In June 07, James Brendan Downey, a patient of Dr. Shagan, died days after receiving a methadone prescription from the doctor. The feds also accused Dr. Shagan of handing out other controlled drugs like Xanax, hydrocodone, and roxycodone. Gilbert and her then-colleague Sean Cronin suspected witness tampering on the part of the defense. And so without approval from the local U.S. attorney at the time, Alex Acosta, Gilbert, and Cronin authorized a wiretap of Shagan's lawyer, which ultimately yielded nothing. Dr. Shagan, who was acquitted on all counts, says Gilbert has no business being a federal prosecutor. He said, I have no reason to believe that she'll behave ethically in any circumstance. I do not find it appropriate for her to still be employed by the Department of Justice. He added she was a sorry sack of lies. In a sharply critical 50-page decision, which described Gilbert and her team as acting in bad faith and with gross negligence, U.S. District Judge Alan Gold ordered the government to pay Dr. Shagan over $600,000 in legal fees. That order was later overturned by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. DOJ said in court papers, the government acknowledges and deeply regrets that it made serious mistakes. Gilbert has also come under fire for history of political donations to Democrat candidates for federal office, including more than 2,000 presidential campaigns of Biden and former President Obama, according to Federal Election Commission records. Shouldn't somebody have to recuse up in here? I mean, for real? Earlier this week, last week now, Representative Matt Gates sent a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland demanding the names of all the people working in Jack Smith's office on the Trump case. He wrote, it should be obvious that doing due diligence and vetting an office that has apparently done no vetting of its own personnel, or worse, might affirmatively be seeking to staff with sanctioned, sanctioned lawyers and partisan hatchet men and women is an entirely appropriate purpose and one small reason I'm requesting this information. Yeah, y'all are going to vet them, so we need to. That is just jacked all the way up. No, St. Holmes? I mean, that's ridiculous. And yet, you're not really surprised, are you? I'm not surprised. You expect it, don't you? Now, speaking of Biden, and we're going to get to COVID, we're going to get to Jeffrey Epstein, we're going to get to a lot of stuff. Speaking of Biden, Sister Tolja over at Red State has an op-ed piece. It's time to address the cruelty of Jill Biden. And you might want to take a look at that at Red State. Because she's talking about the fact that Biden's going from bad, bad to worse and just being totally out of it. 
and that his wife is the one who demanded that he run for a second term because she likes living in the White House. And you know what? Sister Tolja even compares her to Edith Wilson. Now, Edith Wilson was wife of Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson, in the second term, had a really bad stroke. So Edith was like in charge of the White House for like a year, the last year and five months of Wilson's second term. Yeah, biography.com said the first lady who became an acting president without being elected during her husband Woodrow Wilson's presidency. For one year and five months, Wilson oversaw her husband's presidential affairs while he recovered from a major stroke. So Jill is just kind of pushing her guy around, you know? And we're all supposed to ignore when Dementia Joe Biden says stuff like this. All right. God save the queen, man. God save the queen, huh? I mean, queen's been dead since last year. He's just, he's just out of it. We got COVID stuff coming up. We got Jeffrey Epstein stuff coming up. We got some transgender stuff coming up that is going to shock you. Um, I mean, it just is. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff going on on this edition of the Doc Washman Show. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for my pillow 2.0, He's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29. And twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once in a lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slipper Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. 
Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn Silver Coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. Let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. All right, before I get to the uh, transgender stuff, I've got one more quote from Mike Davis about the horrendous William Barr that I need to share with you. He says, Bill Barr spent a lot of time today on TV talking about Sunday calling for Trump to die in prison over a fight with Biden's librarians and other bureaucrats over presidential records. I wish Barr had that same level of energy for the six months of Black Lives Matter and Antifa destroying American cities on his watch. But he didn't, did he? No. No, he certainly didn't. None of that. All right. Um, we're going to get to the COVID-19 origin. Uh, we're going to get to the uh, Epstein stuff. I want to do um, do some uh, transgender stuff here. This, this, is, this is getting crazy now. You heard the latest about uh, Chris Christie? What does Mark Levin call him? Krispy Kreme? He's a big guy. I trust Chris Christie about as far as I can throw him and his slightly chunkier cousin simultaneously into hurricane force winds. That's how much I trust Chris Christie. The Epic Times has the article. Chris Christie says transgender procedures on minors should be allowed if parents consent. Have you heard about this? Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, a declared candidate for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, says he thinks transgender procedures on minors, including hormone blockers, should be allowed as long as the parent consents. While Governor of New Jersey, Christie signed into law a measure that allows self-identifying transgender minors to use the bathroom that accords with their professed gender identity. That proposal advanced amid national debate over whether people should be able to use opposite-sex bathrooms. 
particularly biological males using female bathrooms. Now, a number of states have passed laws restricting access to transgender procedures for minors as a country has seen a sharp uptick in the number of youths who question their gender identity. States with laws that limit transgender procedures include Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Indiana, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, Arkansas. Well, that's not true with Arkansas. I wish it was true. No, Arkansas passed a law saying that um, if they do this to you when you're a minor, when you become an adult, you can sue. And then Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed the bill, and his veto was overwhelmingly overridden, but it never... It has not become law yet because um, the Walton Family Foundation, the Walmart people, and the ACLU and the Arkansas Chamber of Commerce sued to keep it from becoming law. So in the next legislative session, which was this year, they passed a new bill that was even weaker that said, I'll tell you what, practitioners of the transgender Mutilation and or doling out the puberty blockers cannot be sued when the minors become adults if they get the parent or guardian to sign this long piece of paper about all the horrible side effects of the procedure. So they always throw Arkansas into that, that, that list there, but Arkansas is not on the list really. Anyway, similar legislation is pending, having been approved by at least one state legislative chamber in Texas, Louisiana, North Carolina, Missouri, Kansas, and Wyoming. So, Chris Christie, Jake Tapper, CNN, said many Republican governors across the country have been banning hormone therapy and puberty blockers for transgender people under 18 years old. As governor of New Jersey, you signed into law some legal protections for trans people, including students. What do you make of your fellow Republican governors and candidates going in the opposite direction? Chris Christie says, Jake, what I believe we should be focused on most importantly in these issues is making sure there's parental involvement in every step along the way. I don't think... Uh, the government should ever be stepping into the place of the parents and helping to move their children through a process where those children are confused or concerned about. Boy, what a monster this guy is. Yeah, so if you, you know, if you got a, uh, a woman who has a child and uh, she's no longer married to the, uh, the dad or never maybe was and it's a little boy and she really wanted a little girl and, you know, she wants to, Tell him he's a little girl and put him through all this stuff. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool with Chris Christie. He's fine with that. Okay. Now, let me get to Asa. Apparently, Chris Christie and Asa are battling it out. Asa Hutchinson, that is, for you people outside of uh, Arkansas. Aza Hutchinson is a former governor of Arkansas. 
who has also announced that he is running for president. So apparently, Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie are battling it out for that small sliver of folks who believe that uh, there shouldn't be any laws against mutilating children. Oh, as long as the uh, as long as the parents sign off on it, should be fine, right? Did you ever think that there would be Republican presidential candidates actually saying this kind of garbage? It's it's frankly it's it's amazing to me. It really is. Okay, so let's see what Aza said about it. And by the way, hat tip to Jeff Charles over at Red State who introduced this video clip saying Aza Hutchison, who's running for president for some reason, slams folks for suggesting that federal agencies have been weaponized against Trump and others. We don't need more people shilling for corrupt government officials and running cover for the ruling class. So he's not talking about the trans thing here, but I'm just putting into perspective that that's who he is. And he hates Trump. And he hates you, even if you don't support Trump. If you just think that Trump's getting a raw deal, then Asa thinks you're terrible. And here he is. And the whole concept uh, of the re- that so many Republican leaders are adopting, that this is a weaponization of the Justice Department. And I think they've made some bad decisions. Uh, I can certainly disagree with many of the decisions they've made, particularly Jim Comey uh, and some of his in reference to uh, Hillary Clinton. Oh. You don't have the pro- any problem with how they treated Republicans. You just think that. Jim Comey was unfair to Hillary Clinton, who broke all kind of laws and wasn't prosecuted for any of them. This this is who was governor of Arkansas for eight years. Can you believe this? But in terms of the overall charge of weaponization of the uh, Justice Department, look at Donald Trump. He's already declared that he, if he's elected president, he's going to appoint a special prosecutor to go after the Biden family. That's called a weaponization of the Justice Department. And so let's back off of these accusations and let's get back to being the party of the rule of law, of the justice system, supporting law enforcement, and equal application of law. Let's don't undermine the greatest justice system and criminal justice system and rule of law in the world today, this side of heaven. So Aze Hutchinson's only been a, a lawyer for like, what, 40 years and doesn't realize that the Constitution says that the Justice Department is part of the executive branch and the Attorney General is not the top law enforcement officer of the United States. The President is. The Attorney General works for the President. But anyway, more on the uh, the transgender madness 
as it were. I don't know if you knew this. Donald Trump repeatedly celebrated the inclusion of transgender women, that means men, in his beauty pageant. I don't know if you knew that. Years before he's running for president to defeat the cult of gender ideology, quote-unquote, Donald Trump welcomed and praised the inclusion of transgender women, in other words, men, in the Miss Universe pageant. In since unreported radio and television interviews from spring and summer 2012, Trump celebrated the interest in a 23-year-old transgender woman, in other words, man, named Jenna Talakova, participating in a Canadian pageant. He then later effusively praised the winner of the Miss USA pageant, Olivia Culpo, for saying that transgender women, in other words, men, should be allowed to compete. Were, were, you, were you aware of any of this? Um, let me, uh, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, let's, let's, let's back it up. Let's, let's back it up. Here we go. CNN's K-File unearthing past comments from Donald Trump touting his decision to allow a transgender woman to compete for a spot in his Miss Universe pageant in 2012. This is a young woman who, according to the laws of Canada and according to the laws of the United States, is allowed to enter the pageant system. What I did is I said, we have 58 contestants in Canada. I said, let her run and maybe she'll win. And if she wins, she'll go to Miss Universe. And I think. Okay, wait. Was anybody calling a man who pretended to be a woman a woman back in 2012? I mean, you see it all the time now everywhere. Uh, people say, uh, oh, it's not Bruce Jenner, it's Caitlyn Jenner. Got to call her she. It's all over Fox News. Sean Hannity calls Bruce Jenner uh, a woman. It's all over Fox News. Donald Trump is a trendsetter. He was doing this back 11 years ago in 2012. I think I made the right decision. I feel fine with the decision. 11 years later, Trump has done a 180, making the repealing of transgender rights a central part of his 2024 campaign speech. No serious country should be telling its children that they were born with the wrong gender. We will defeat the cult of gender ideology to reassert that God created two genders, male and female. And here's another beauty. I will keep men out of women's sports. Out front now, Andrew Kaczynski, senior editor of CNN's K-File. So, Andrew, you heard him there. Keep men out of women's sports, he says, but not apparently out of women's pageants back in 2012, a decision that he seemed to tout pretty proudly back then on Fox, no less. Yeah, this has become a hugely volatile issue in Republican politics. And where was Donald Trump a decade ago? He was on the complete opposite side of this issue. Now, you heard those comments that he made earlier in the year. The context for these comments in 2012 is there was a transgender Miss Universe contestant in Canada. The existing policy for the transgender or for the Miss Universe pageant was that there was a ban. She threatens legal action and Donald Trump uh, personally says that he overturns the ban. He celebrates the buzz around it. He calls it modernizing the uh, the pageant. And what does he do 
to use as his rationale for changing the pageant. He cites the Olympics allowing transgender athletes. Now, we know we just heard him uh, ranting against transgender women in sports. Fast forward just a few months uh, at the uh, Miss Universe pageant, uh, the eventual winner, Olivia Culpa, she gets asked whether she agrees with transgender women competing in the pageant. She gives an answer uh, where she says that she does. She cites them having sex reassignment surgery. Uh, and Donald Trump was very enthusiastic about this. He approved of it. And in a couple of instances on Fox and Friends, he even uh, praised her for it. Take a listen to these. She gave a great answer, a very tough question, but she on transgender. Just the question everybody wants to hear. Right. And she gave a great answer, and she really did a great job. Actually, her answer was a very intelligent answer, and that's one of the reasons I assumed the judges picked her. And there are also more recent comments where Trump spoke out in support of the transgender community. What else has he said? Yeah, that's right. In 2016, Donald Trump spoke against that uh, bill in North Carolina, the so-called bathroom bill, uh, as critics uh, uh, dubbed it. And this was an issue in that primary where Donald Trump was actually running to the left of most of the other Republicans. He actually got criticized at the time for it by Ted Cruz after Caitlyn Jenner uh, had transitioned. There was also an incident where Trump is asked uh, if Caitlyn Jenner goes to Trump Tower, uh, would you let her use the bathroom uh, for her gender identity. And Trump is very, again, enthusiastic uh, in support of her. Listen to these two clips from that 2016 campaign. You leave it the way it is. There have been very few complaints the way it is. People go, they use the bathroom that they feel is appropriate. There has been so little trouble. So if Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower, and want to use the bathroom, you would be fine with her using any bathroom she chooses. That is correct. So you've heard his, his rhetoric back then. You've heard it today. We did reach out uh, to the Trump campaign to ask how he squares the, those past comments uh, with today, uh, but we did not uh, hear back. Well, you probably didn't hear back because nobody watches CNN. But, I mean, there it is. I don't know if you were aware of that, but um, that's out there. And there's even a clip from this guy that Trump called a woman at the time who wanted to uh, meet Trump, the, the one in the uh, uh, Miss Universe Canada pageant. You said you're in it to win it. Um, any words for Donald Trump? I'd love to meet him, and I'm waiting for my call for the apprentice. <laughs> waiting for my call from the apprentice. Love to meet him, waiting for my call from the apprentice. Interesting. Now, um, Ron DeSantis has been talking about this lately. Uh, a guy named Benny Johnson was interviewing him. And asked DeSantis what he thought about the whole transgender thing, and it went something like this. Ask me about the greater issue of transgenderism. Dylan Mulvaney, of course, is what kicked all of this off. What do you think about men taking the role of women and taking really women's, women's places in... Now, Dylan Mulvaney was the, the guy that got Bud Light in trouble. Advertising, in sports, playing against them. And this seems like an existential threat to women. Uh, and total as fathers of daughters. You have a swimmer that competes on the men's team for three years at Penn and then switches to the women's team and then wins the 500-yard 
freestyle national championship for women when you're a mediocre male swimmer and now you win the women's and so you had a second place finisher she was actually from sarasota she should have been the national champion i did a proclamation from our office saying she was the best woman swimmer yes. in 500 yard because she was and so some of this is yes it's taking away opportunities and athletics and some other stuff and that's really really important but i think there's also just the issue of are we going to be a society based on truth or are we going to be a society based on deceit and if you take a man and they dress up as a woman and you tell me i have to accept that they're a woman then you're asking me to be complicit in a lie and i just refuse to do that so we've got to tell the truth uh i think you know the truth will set you free and let's just be honest about what's going on here that swimmer was not the best women's 500 yard champion Okay, the number two one was the best women. So that's just the bottom line. But, you know, I've got six-year-old daughter, five-year-old son, three-year-old daughter. The three-year-old just started T-ball. She's whacking the ball. (laughs) They're good athletes. They like to do different things. So you want to have opportunities. And we got on this very early in Florida. We did this a couple years ago where we did the women's sports protection. So that's been the law here for, for several years now. Wow. Wow. I mean that's um that's intense. I'm out here calling balls and strikes because I just think you deserve to know what's going on. I really do. All right. Uh that having been said, let's talk a little bit about COVID. A new study out from the Cleveland Clinic confirms negative efficacy of the COVID vaccine. People who have been boosted are 33% more likely to get COVID. Daily Skeptic, dailyskeptic.org, has a study from the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, let me see, who else had it? Yeah, Chief Nerd has a, has a link to it also. If you're going, who's Chief Nerd? Chief Nerd's the guy with a podcast who had Tucker Carlson on a few months before he was taken off the air at Fox, who was talking about the epiphany when he realized the media is not here to share the news. They're here to protect the powerful. Chief Nerd says new authors of the bombshell Cleveland Clinic study have released another new study which further contradicts the CDC narrative. Over 48,000 working-age Cleveland Clinic employees those not up to date on COVID-19 vaccination had a lower risk of COVID-19 than those up to date. The current CDC definition, definition provides a meaningless classification of risk of COVID-19 in the adult population. So you might want to look that up. DailySkeptic.org and Chief Nerd over on Twitter. That's a, that's a huge deal. That they're still lying about. By the way, Michael Schellenberger, one of the uh, reporters on the Twitter files, has a thread over there on Twitter. He links to a New York Post article from April 17, 2020. Facebook's so-called fact checkers are the real fake news after censoring New York Post story. What's that about? Schellenberger tells us. February 2020, after a New York Post op-ed said COVID-19 came from a lab leak, Facebook censored the story. Why? 
because so-called independent fact-checkers said it was false information. Not only was it true, one of the fact-checkers actually had worked at the lab. Ten months later, Facebook and Twitter censored the New York Post for another accurate article, this time about Hunter Biden's laptop. As such, the New York Post, which reporters New York Times and Washington Post sneer at for being a so-called tabloid, got two of the biggest stories of 2020 right, while the New York Times and Washington Post, which called the lab leak a racist and debunked conspiracy theory, got it horribly wrong. Twitter and Facebook executives sided with media that confirmed their partisan assumptions rather than allow the debate to occur. And Facebook continues its ideologically one-sided censorship today, censoring a reasonable debate over who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline over there in the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, pardon me. Michael Schellenberger continues, Facebook censored me in 2020 after I accurately said natural disasters were getting better, not worse, resulting in fewer deaths and causing less economic damage when accounting for more wealth in harm's way than they had in the past. And then he links to the uh, he links to uh, the, the bar graphs, the charts. He says, here's the data showing declining disasters as a result of fewer deaths and declining costs from extreme weather events. This data is uncontroversial and uncontested, and yet Facebook continues to censor me for sharing this accurate information. He says nearly 5 million people on Twitter have seen and nearly 7,000 have shared our bombshell exclusive from June 13th of this year. Just five people, five, not five million, not 5,000, just five people shared our bombshell exclusive on Facebook. Facebook operates blacklists and engages in partisan ideological censorship. He says, join us at 7 p.m. June 22nd at Westminster Central Hall, London, UK, where we will expose the censorship industrial complex. Get your tickets now. And I would think that would be streaming online somewhere, too, for folks in the U.S. He says, we now know that COVID started in a lab and that the U.S. government has known for a long time that the first people to get sick were the scientists working on gain-of-function research, which means viruses, more infections. And he links to this from June 13th. says, after years of official claims to the contrary, strong new evidence suggests the virus known as SARS-CoV-2 escaped from a Chinese lab. According to multiple sources, the researchers who led gain-of-function research, which increases infectiousness, were the first to be infected. He said, after years of official pronouncements to the contrary, strong new evidence has emerged suggesting the virus known as SARS-CoV-2 escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. According to multiple U.S. government officials interviewed as part of a lengthy investigation by Public and Racket, the first people infected by the virus, Patient Zero, included 
Ben Hu, H-U, a researcher who led the Wuhan Virology Institute's gain-of-function research on SARS-like coronaviruses, which increased the infectiousness of viruses. More than three years after the pandemic's outbreak, many around the world had given up on learning the origins of SARS-CoV-2, the highly infectious respiratory virus that has killed millions. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think the ventilators killed a lot of them. But anyway, I think the remdesivir killed a lot of them. But anyway, and the response to which shut down businesses and schools, upended societies, and caused enormous collateral damage. Public officials in the U.S. and other countries have repeatedly suggested that uncovering the pandemic's origin may not be possible. Anthony Fauci, the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who oversaw pandemic response for two administrations, said we may never know. Well, actually, Burks was in charge of that. But anyway, now answers increasingly look within reach. Sources within the U.S. government say that three of the earliest people to become infected with SARS-CoV-2 were Ben Hu, Yu Ping, and Yan Zhu. All were members of the Wuhan lab suspected to have leaked the pandemic virus. As such, not only do we know there were Wuhan Virology Institute scientists who had developed COVID-19-like illnesses in November 2019, but also they were working with the closest relatives of SARS-CoV-2 and inserting gain-of-function features unique to it. When a source was asked how certain they were that these were the identities of the three Wuhan scientists who developed symptoms consistent with COVID-19, in the fall of 2019, we were told 100% certain. Alina Chan, a molecular biologist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, said Ben Hugh is essentially the next Xi Zhengli. Now, she is known as the Batwoman of China and led the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Again, quoting from Alina Chan. He was her star pupil. He had been making chimeric SARS-like viruses and testing these in humanized mice. If I had to guess who would be doing this risky virus research, and most at risk of getting accidentally infected, it would be him. So Hugh and you researched the novel lineage of SARS-like viruses from which SARS-CoV-2 hails, and in 2019 co-authored a paper with Xi Li that described SARS-like lineages they had studied over the years. Jamie Metzl, a former member of the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing, who raised questions starting in early 2020 about a possible research-related pandemic origin, said it's a game-changer if it can be proven that Hugh got sick with COVID-19 before anyone else. That would be the smoking gun. Now, why is nobody else telling you this? That would be the smoking gun. Hugh was a lead hands-on researcher in Xi's lab. Sources tell Public and Racket that other news organizations are chasing aspects of this story. On Saturday, the London Times quoted an anonymous U.S. State Department investigator saying, 
it has become increasingly clear that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was involved in the creation, promulgation, and cover-up of the COVID-19 pandemic. Public and Racket are the first publications to reveal the names of the three sick Wuhan Virology Institute workers and place them directly in the lab that collected and experimented with SARS-like viruses poised for human emergence. Next week, the Directorate of National Intelligence is expected to release previously classified material, which may include the names of the three Wuhan scientists who were the likely among the first to be sickened by SARS-CoV-2. A bill signed by Biden earlier this year specifically called for the release of the names and roles of the sick researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, their symptoms and date of symptom onset, and whether these researchers had been involved with or exposed to coronavirus research. On December 29, 2017, two years before the pandemic began, Chinese state-run television aired a video that included a scene of Ben Hugh watching a lab worker handle specimens. Now, neither are wearing protective gear. The same video shows Wuhan scientists hunting for bats, bat viruses with little protective gear. Chan said if they were worried about being infected in the field, they would need full body suits with no gaps to be safe. That's the only way. The Wuhan Institute of Virology research with live SARS-like viruses were, was performed at too low of a safety level. BSL-2, explains Chan, when we now know that the pandemic virus is even capable of escaping from a BSL-3 lab and infecting fully vaccinated young lab workers. While scientists justify such research as necessary for developing vaccines, President Barack Obama banned federal funding for gain-of-function research of concern in 2014 because experts had come to the consensus it was too dangerous. However, the National Institute of Health and NIAID, headed by Francis Collins and Tony Fauci and a major U.S. government grantee, EcoHealth Alliance, deemed their work on SARS-like viruses as not falling under the gain-of-function research of concern definitions and funded this project in China and Southeast Asia anyway. So they went behind Obama's back. See, that's the thing that has always just amazed me because it's the only thing I think I've ever heard of where I agree with Barack Obama. Yep, that was too dangerous. And so Fauci and Francis Collins basically give Obama the middle finger, and they're like, well, we'll go behind your back, dude, anyway. In March 2018, the Wuhan Virology Institute EcoHealth Alliance and University of North Carolina applied for $14 million grant from the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, to engineer furin cleavage sites into SARS-like coronaviruses to study how this affected their ability to grow and cause disease. Scientists say the key piece of the COVID-19 virus, which made it so transmissible, compared to its closest relatives, was its unique furin cleavage site. DARPA rejected the grant, but it now appears that the Wuhan Virology Institute went forward with the research anyway. London Times reported U.S. collaborators 
of the Wuhan Institute had come forward and said Wuhan scientists had put furin cleavage sites into SARS-like viruses in 2019. So this Hugh guy co-authored multiple papers on coronavirus research, including a 2017 paper on chimeric bat coronaviruses with Peter Daszak, the head of EcoHealth Alliance, which is funded in part by the NIH and the USAID Emerging Pandemic Threats Predict Program, data privately shared with the NIH revealed that these chimeric SARS-like viruses grew far more quickly and caused more severe disease and humanized mice in the lab. When the Wuhan Institute of Virology put out their first paper about the pandemic virus, they failed to point out the novel furin cleavage site, despite having had plans to and allegedly putting such gain-of-function features into SARS-like viruses in their lab. Chan said, It's as if these scientists propose putting horns on horses, but when a unicorn shows up, In their city, a year later, they write a paper describing every part of it except its horn. Public sent emails and made phone calls to the NIH, Wuhan Virology Institute, EcoHealth Alliance, Dajak, Hugh, and Xi over the last several days and did not hear back. It is unclear who in the U.S. government had access to the intelligence about the sick employees of the Wuhan Virology Institute, how long they had it, and why it was not shared with the public. Chan said, you would expect the country of origin to be defensive, but you wouldn't expect the country receiving the virus to be withholding key evidence. And yet, that's what they did, isn't it? That's right. January 5th, 2021, five days before Joe Biden took office, U.S. State Department published a fact sheet that pointed to the likelihood of a lab leak as a cause of a pandemic. Already, the State Department in 2021 suspected that the Wuhan Virology Institute had lied to the public. Here's the quote. The U.S. government has reason to believe that several researchers inside the Wuhan Institute became sick in autumn 2019 before the first identified case of the outbreak with symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illnesses. That raises questions about the credibility of Wuhan senior researcher Xi Zheng Li's public claim that there was zero infection among the Wuhan Institute staff and students by SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-related viruses. In February of this year, FBI Director Christopher Wray told a reporter that the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Again, the London Times reported that State Department investigators found evidence that researchers working on these experiments were taken to hospital with COVID-like symptoms in November 2019. As previously reported in Vanity Fair, Some of the information State Department investigators found in 2021 was sitting in the U.S. intelligence community's own files unanalyzed. Okay, going back to this researcher at MIT, Chan, who said, ever since I put out my May 2020 preprint or research paper, 
saying that an accidental lab origin was possible. I was criticized as a conspiracy theorist. If this info had been made public in May of 2020, I doubt that many in the scientific community and the media would have spent the last three years raving about a raccoon dog or a pangolin animal in a wet market. Now, public is a reader-supported publication, and they're saying to support their investigative reporting, consider becoming a page subscriber. Well, they're doing great work here. Identifying the first COVID-19 case as a Wuhan Institute scientist overseeing gain-of-function research has significant ramifications for investigators in search of a motive for a cover-up. Politicians, scientists, journalists, and amateur researchers for years now has zeroed in on the possibility COVID-19 may have resulted from U.S.-funded gain-of-function research conducted in China. Publications ranging from the Washington Post to The Intercept to The Wall Street Journal have uncovered suggestive details, including the fact that the NIH awarded funding for at least 18 gain-of-function research projects between 2012 and 2020, and NIH scientists in 2016 expressed concerns about supposedly paused hybrid chimera virus research. Didn't Fauci lie about that under oath more than once? Anyway, it says... Had the information come out earlier, governments may have responded to the pandemic differently. After Public shared the information with Chan, she said, I feel vindicated, but I'm frustrated. If you knew that this was likely a lab-enhanced pathogen, there's so many things you could have done differently. This whole pandemic could have been reshaped. Metzl said, had U.S. government officials, including Dr. Fauci, stated from day one that a COVID-19 research-related origin was a very real possibility and made clear that we had little idea that viruses were being held at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, what work was being done there and who was doing that work, our national and global conversations would have been dramatically different. The time has come for a full accounting. Now, Michael Schellenberger says this story was reported by him, by Matt Taibbi, and by Alex Gutentag. And then they have the uh, the video that includes a scene of Ben Hugh watching a lab worker handle specimens, neither are wearing protective gear. The same video shows Wuhan scientists hunting for bad viruses with little protective gear. You might want to look into this. Michael Schellenberger writes over, Schellenberger writes over at the Substack, but he's also all over Twitter. S-H-E-L-L-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. And he also said that whistleblowers are coming to public, their publication, and racket the publication of Matt Taibbi because they know we will never betray them. He said, Matt and I believe in the Pentagon Papers principle which the mainstream news media abandoned. And he says, here is the proof, and then there's a lot more. But again, one of the things I said I was going to do today was a deep dive on the origins of COVID. Um, Because, I mean, certainly, certainly I owe you that. Now, Kim.com has something on that also. Let me uh, let me go back over there. Let me find the tab on that. 
Uh, he's links to White Coat Waste Project. It says we got the receipts. And they literally have screenshots of official government documents. Here's the NIH document obtained via a 2021 WCW lawsuit proving that COVID's likely patient zero, Ben Hugh, was receiving U.S. tax dollars from NIH and USAID via EcoHealth for gain-of-function animal experiments at the Wuhan lab. So this Ben Hugh guy, this patient zero, was working for the U.S. government. He was receiving U.S. tax dollars. Kim.com says this is big. Records obtained in a lawsuit against NIH prove that Ben Hugh, COVID's likely patient zero, was funded directly by Anthony Fauci, NIH, and USAID to conduct dangerous gain-of-function experiments in Wuhan. Fauci lied under oath. Please seek prosecution, Senator Rand Paul. Well, you know, I don't know what he means by that. You, you know, you can refer him to the DOJ, but they're not going to do anything, right? You can refer him for perjury charges. Anyway, Kim.com continues. Says this is no longer a conspiracy theory. The U.S. government is responsible for COVID-19. Millions of deaths will again. I think the remdesivir and the ventilators are responsible for a lot of that. No, don't get me wrong. COVID did kill some people. I almost lost a son to it. But anyway, he says, and millions of people damaged by unsafe vaccines. Yeah, who knows how many people have been killed by the vaccines. Every family that lost someone and every person who suffered now has definitive proof that the U.S. government did this to you. This is the biggest crime against humanity in the history of the world, he says. U.S. government killed more people with COVID-19 than the Nazis killed Jews during the Holocaust. Those responsible need to be arrested and jailed. The U.S. government must be shamed around the world and pay reparations. Well, I mean, and uh, the Chinese government, too. I got an interview coming up about that, about the Chinese government. So, yeah, that's coming up really soon. It's going to be one of those video interviews I've been doing lately. Frank Gaffney. So be uh, be looking out for that. So, I don't know if you knew about this. Did you hear the latest about the FDA? No, no, we're going to look. We're going to get to Jeffrey Epstein, okay? My voice holds out. We're going to get to Jeffrey Epstein. But did you hear the latest about the FDA? Because this, this is a big deal. Um, the folks over at ICanDecide.org informed Consent Action Network. FDA admits it has no records indicating COVID-19 vaccine safety protocols were followed. I mean, let that sink in. If you want to read the article, it's over at ICanDecide.org. From early in the pandemic, the government has been promising the public it was taking COVID-19 vaccine safety very seriously and that the vaccines have been subject to the most intense 
safety monitoring program in U.S. history. All right. Now, ICANN likes to confirm these claims for itself, but when it tried to do that, it uncovered that the FDA actually deviated from longstanding protocols concerning vaccine safety. Since May 9, 2008, the FDA has had vaccine safety procedures in place detailed in a standard operating procedures and policies document. That document describes the procedures that the FDA staff should routinely follow to coordinate rapid responses to complex vaccine safety issues. It discusses a vaccine safety team whose key purpose is to coordinate FDA rapid responses to vaccine safety issues and to serve as a resource to identify data and policy needs pertaining to vaccine safety. One office in the FDA is crucial to this goal and acts as the official contact for the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, and is responsible for processing and review of the reports, as well as for forwarding those reports to the appropriate contacts within CBER for further action, and follow-up. For example, its staff members identify VAERS adverse event reports that need a rapid response and complex coordination, after which they're supposed to immediately inform certain FDA management who then alert other sub-agencies. Given the lofty talk by federal health agencies claiming that COVID vaccines were subject to the most rigorous and accurate review processes globally, and, and they link to the FDA document that says that, one would think that the FDA, at a minimum, su- subjected them to at least these already ridiculously weak pre-existing standards for vaccine safety monitoring. But after ICANN's attorneys submitted records requests to the FDA seeking documents in the FDA's policies concerning the identification of VAERS reports requiring a rapid response, as well as documents showing that the FDA had actually followed up on the individual VAERS reports that required a, va- a rapid response, the FDA replied more than a year later with an incredible response. A search of our records did not locate any documents responsive to your request. So, in a nutshell, the FDA has essentially admitted that it is not following even its own set of already watered-down procedures for vaccine safety monitoring that were in place prior to COVID. When the curtains pull back on purported thorough and intense safety monitoring, there's yet again nothing to see. So much for the FDA's promise to look out for the American people. ICANN will continue to monitor the FDA and share any important updates. That's just nuts, man. But again, this is what you get when you listen to the Doc Washburn show and you're willing to hang in there with me because there's so much important stuff and I'm trying to get to all of it for you. Honest to goodness, I'm trying to get to all of it for you. So I got more from um, Kaneko the Great. To mandate mRNA vaccines, the public was deceived by scientific and political authorities who falsely claimed that the vaccines would stop infection, block transmission, and effectively end 
the spread of COVID-19. This led to a decline in public trust in vaccines as dissenting voices were suppressed through censorship and established expectations were consistently shifted. Global roundtable discussions should have been held and broadcasted, allowing renowned doctors like Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dr. Robert Malone, and Dr. Peter McCullough to debate the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines for the world to hear. Open dialogue and debate were crucial for scientific progress on various issues such as lockdowns, treatment protocols, and school closures. Unfortunately, dissenting doctors' voices were silenced on social media, banned from television, and subjected to media ridicule. Science thrives when established theories are critically analyzed and challenged, while authoritarianism and top-down control rely on suppressing scientific debate. The best way for the authorities to rebuild public trust is to embrace an open dialogue with dissenting perspectives. However, if the ultimate goal is to establish authoritarianism and top-down control, then scientific and political so-called authorities should continue on their current path without lamenting the loss of public trust. Now, he's got a He's got kind of a uh, compilation video here of people like Bill Gates, former CDC director Rochelle Walensky, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, Joe Biden. All these people lying through their faces, lying through their teeth. 2020 and 2021, I don't think any of them have apologized for all the lying. But in case you forgot, this is uh, 2 minutes and 19 seconds. During 2021, we should be able to manufacture a lot of vaccines, and, and that vaccine, a uh, key goal is to stop the transmission, to get the immunity levels up so that you get almost no, almost no uh, infection going on whatsoever. Everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. We can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving um, the virus. Fully vaccinated people are at a very, very low risk of getting COVID-19. Therefore, if you've been fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. We have all the vaccines we need. 
We just need our people to take it. A, for their own protection, for the protection of their family, but also to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. I think given the country as a whole, the fact that we have now about 50% of adults fully vaccinated and about 62% of adults having received at least one dose as a nation, I I'm, I feel fairly certain you're not going to see the kind of surges we've seen in the past. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized, you're not going to be in an ICU unit, and you're not going to die. You're okay. You're not going to you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Yeah. Then all those people get COVID. It's horrifying what they did. And oh my, did they lie. Oh my, did they lie. Now, I, I, I've been promising you we're going to get some Epstein stuff. So, in the words of the late great, I don't think he's late, still around. In the words of the great philosopher, Tone Loke, Let's do it. American Thinker, June 18th, 2023. Epstein's death wasn't the first time the feds told an unlikely prisoner suicide story. Last January, Tucker Carlson featured a segment that challenged the theory that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. He was not alone. Many doubt the official narrative. What the doubters don't realize is how the press used the cover-up of a 1995 brutal prison homicide to facilitate the cover-up of Epstein's very likely homicide. On August 21st, 1995, Kenneth Michael Trentadue was found dead in his allegedly suicide-proof cell at the Federal Transfer Center, Oklahoma City. Pieces of his skull were missing in three different places. There were deep bruises under, underneath his arms, including bruises shaped like a person's fingertips running along his biceps. His knuckles were deeply bruised and swollen. According to the government, Trentadue's appalling injuries resulted from his hanging himself in that supposedly suicide-proof cell during a 24-minute interval between bed checks. The FBI and the DOJ successfully made their suicide fantasy the accepted narrative about Trentadue's death. The only person who wasn't fooled was Kenneth Trentadue's brother, Jesse Trentadue, a trial lawyer in Salt Lake City who kept challenging the government's lies. What he could not figure out was what triggered the violent assault. The issue was addressed in the Rohrbacker report. Dana Rohrbacker was a uh, Republican congressman from California, which examined the many controversies surrounding the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Turns out it may have been a case of mistaken identity says bank robber Richard Guthrie claimed he would soon be revealing information that would blow the lid off the Oklahoma City bombing case. The next day, he was found dead, hanging in a cell, purportedly a suicide. This suspicious so-called suicide mirrored the similar death of Kenneth Trinidou, another prisoner, who may have been tangentially and incorrectly linked to the Oklahoma City bombing. The death of these two prisoners who happen to be very similar in appearance, is more than disturbing. 
According to the FBI, Richard Guthrie was a member of the Midwest Bank Robbers Gang. They reportedly shared stolen monies with Timothy McVeigh to help fund the Oklahoma City bombing. Trent Adieu may have been beaten to death by prison guards, by prison guards because they mistook him for Guthrie. This is where matters stood until 2019 when Epstein was discovered dead in his federal prison cell, purportedly another prison hanging. The next day, two prominent newspapers described Epstein's death in relation to Trentadue's death all the way back in 1995. Wall Street Journal said, The investigation into Mr. Epstein's death could take years to complete. It took more than two years, for instance, for the Justice Department's Inspector General to complete a probe into the death of Kenneth Trentadue, who was found hanging in a cell at federal prison. TheHill.com was more colorful. Deadly deja vu. Epstein's prison death was decades in the making. By accident or design, each newspaper incorrectly referred to Trinidad's death as a suicide. Epstein's death, as it turns out, was just as unlike a suicide as Trinidad's was. To begin with, how many people are aware that Dr. Barbara Sampson, then medical examiner for New York City, did not even attend Epstein's autopsy? An American thinker links to an article here from the Miami Herald. Consider, acclaimed forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden told the Miami Herald that the pathologist who actually conducted the autopsy, Dr. Kristen Roman, also had trouble determining that Epstein hanged himself and initially determined that the manner of death was pending. Less than a week later, Dr. Sampson changed the manner of death from pending to suicide with no further findings or input. Did you know this? That's what I'm here for. I share these things with you. Then there was the matter of the fact that Epstein allegedly killed himself simply by kneeling into the noose. Moreover, during a 60 Minutes interview, Dr. Bodden noted, this looks like a clean noose that was never used to compress anybody's neck. Dr. Bodden explained that there was no transfer of blood or skin to that noose, although Epstein had a bloody wound under his chin. So, graphic images from the autopsy report show a deep, bloody ligature mark on Epstein's neck. Bodden said there was no way the mark could have been made by a bedsheet. According to Dr. Bodden, the type of wound Epstein had straight across his neck is more common when a victim is strangled by a wire or a cord. During an interview with Fox News, Dr. Bodden pointed out that the petiche or broken capillaries in Epstein's eyes are further evidence that Epstein did not hang himself. Then there is the highly suspicious matter of Epstein's broken neck bones. During a 60 Minutes broadcast, January 2020, Dr. Bodden expressed dismay concerning fractured neck bones discovered during Epstein's autopsy. Dr. Bodden said in 60 Minutes, there were fractures of the left, the right thyroid cartilage, and the left hyoid bone. I have never seen three fractures like this in a suicidal hanging. Sometimes there's a fracture of the hyoid bone or a fracture of the thyroid cartilage. 
Sharon Alfonsi, 60 Minutes, says, but not three? Dr. Biden responds, very unusual to have two and not three. And going over, over a 1,000 jail hangings, suicides in the New York City state prisons over the past 40 to 50 years, no one had three fractures. Dr. Cyril Wecht, another expert forensic pathologist, does not believe Epstein killed himself. He told the Washington Examiner, I have never seen this kind of hanging scenario, this leaning forward with three fractures. The bunk was three to four feet above, and there was not enough velocity there to produce three fractures. Nevertheless, Dr. Barbara Sampson, chief medical examiner for New York City, tenaciously clings to her suicide by hanging ruling. She does so even though it flies in the face of reams of hard evidence that indicates otherwise. On his January 26, 2023 show, Tucker Carlson featured the many strange circumstances surrounding Epstein's death, including pointing out how Dr. Sampson unilaterally overruled the conclusions of those who actually conducted the autopsy. But why did she do that? Tucker Carlson said that when she was asked that question, she responded by hanging up the phone. In a later broadcast, Tucker Carlson revealed how the Justice Department has been supposedly investigating Epstein's death for four years, but has yet to publish their findings. As you consider the evidence versus the official rulings regarding Epstein's death, consider, too, what President Harry S. Truman wrote on May 12, 1945. President Truman said, We want no Gestapo or secret police. FBI is tending in that direction. They are dabbling in sex life scandals and playing blackmail when they should be catching criminals. Ooh, that was J. Edgar, wasn't it? He was talking about. Now, what makes Truman's statement so profound is not just its word content, but when he wrote it, a mere five days after Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender and Europe's liberation, Truman, who should have been ebullient, he should have been joyful, was instead apparently more concerned about the FBI already in the blackmail business transmogrifying into a Gestapo. Considering the mess we're in now, one might be tempted to ask, how did we fall so far so fast? In fact, warning bells have been going off for decades. The question is, did they fall on deaf ears? Now, that's a new article in the American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com, written by Mark Adams, entitled Epstein's Death Wasn't the First Time the Fed's told an unlikely prisoner suicide story. If you want a copy, just go to AmericanThinker.com and look for the article. came out June 18th, literally yesterday. But there's more about Epstein. I mean, when I give you the rest you may think that that's not even the uh, most shocking thing because a lot of us have been saying for a long time that Epstein didn't kill himself, right? First of all, let me play for you what Tucker said 
on the Chief Nerd podcast a few months before they took him off the air. And still, this may not even be the most shocking thing about Epstein. Because I got, I got more coming up. He was murdered. He was murdered in the special housing unit of federal lockup in Manhattan. How do we know he was murdered? Oh, well, look into it, dude. We did a whole segment on him. I'm sure nobody cared. Um, I'm going to watch it after. You should. It's um, it's beyond belief. And I'm very skeptical of any kind of conspiracy theory or whatever. Why don't more people go after this, though? We know that he was murdered because, well, for one thing, I, a friend of mine is one of the people who last talked to him on the phone the day he was killed. And he had a expectation of a bail hearing in two days. He thought he was getting out. He was not despondent at all. I talked to his lawyer, told me the same thing. They moved someone out of his cell. They put two people, one of whom was not even a full-time prison guard, on duty. None of the cameras trained on the cell worked. They were all out of it that night. They locked the front of the special housing unit that had eight cells in it, but then they opened all the cells inside. So who was it? So I asked a really simple question, the Bureau of Prisons. Who were the other? So there are eight cells, 16, minus his cell because he was alone. So that means there are 14 other inmates there that night. What are their names? Where'd they go? Some of them were transferred out right after. Who were these people? Can't tell you that. Really? You can't tell me that? Well, on the basis of what? Because some inmate at a federal prison's privacy concerns, like Trump telling What are you even talking about? Meanwhile... The Attorney General of the United States, under Trump, Bill Barr, issues a statement being like, no, you know, it's totally... Bill Barr lied. There's no question that Bill Barr well, clearly suspected Epstein was murdered, but stopped the investigation into it. I went and read Bill Barr's book in which he explains all this, and it's like complete official and transparent official. So I have no idea why the Attorney General of the United States would be lying about this, but there's literally no question that he did. I know him. So we, Bill Barr's super nice guy. We reach out to Bill Barr like, hey, why don't you come on and explain why you lied about Jeffrey Epstein's death? Uh, no. Okay. You ever heard that before? Look, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to share these things with you. You're not getting anywhere else. But that may not be the most shocking thing about Epstein. Now, there's more. Let me me give you some more. Heard about this? J.P. Morgan agrees to settle with Jeffrey Epstein victims. Heard that one? The Epic Times has it. J.P. Morgan said on June 12th they reached a settlement with women who say they were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. So the women and the bank put out a joint statement. They notified a federal court in New York they've reached an agreement in principle to settle a lawsuit filed last year by women who accused the bank of facilitating Epstein's sex trafficking operation. The settlement is subject to Approval by U.S. District Judge Jed Rakoff, the Clinton appointee overseeing the case. Spokeswoman for J.P. Morgan Chase told the Epic Times in an email, We all now understand that Epstein's behavior was monstrous, and we believe this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors 
who suffered unimaginable abuse at the hands of this man. Any association with him was a mistake, and we regret it. We would never have continued to do business with him if we believed he was using our bank in any way to help commit heinous crimes. Really? We're supposed to believe that, right? Really? David Boys, a lawyer whose name I first heard in 2020 when he was representing Al Gore, when Al Gore tried to steal the election. Well, now he's a lawyer representing these women who were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. He told the Epic Times in an email, while the road to justice for the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring has been too long, and we are not yet at its end, the historic recovery from J.P. Morgan individually, and in combination with our earlier recovery from Deutsche Bank, the big bank out of Germany, is another important step in achieving the vindication, recognition, and compensation they deserve. Specifics of the agreement weren't disclosed. Well, I read since then it was $290 million. But, and the article goes on and on at the Epic Times, but that, that right there, that uh, may not be the most shocking thing about Jeffrey Epstein. Wall Street Journal, David Benoit and Emily Glazer, June 15, 2023. J.P. Morgan says, former first lady of the U.S. Virgin Islands helped Epstein traffic women. Oh, I should have asked if you're sitting down. Um, yeah. So that's uh, kind of freaky. That's kind of shocking. The former first lady, but that's not all. I got more. But the former first lady of the U.S. Virgin Islands helped Jeffrey Epstein's victims get visas and lined up English language classes for them, facilitating his alleged sex trafficking scheme. As a J.P. Morgan Chase said in a new court filing, the bank released emails between Epstein and the former first lady, Cecile de Jong, who was also an office manager for the convicted sex offenders' businesses in the U.S. territory, as part of a lawsuit between the government and the bank over Epstein's connections to both. U.S. Virgin Islands sued J.P. Morgan late last year, alleging the bank facilitated Epstein's alleged crimes by giving him access to bank accounts and cash he used to pay victims. J.P. Morgan could have helped the government stop Epstein earlier, the Virgin Islands has said, but it ignored red flags and courted him as a valuable client. J.P. Morgan has said it regrets his relationship with Epstein but isn't responsible for his crimes. In the new court filings late Wednesday, J.P. Morgan claims the territory's government was aware of Epstein's crimes. The bank said its leaders, leaders of the U.S. Virgin Islands, accepted gifts and cash to look the other way. Where did this guy get his money? Come on, man. Epstein was swimming in money. He was not a Wall Street trader of any significance at all. Where did the money come from? Come on, man. He was murdered in jail. Glenn Maxwell has been put away in prison for trafficking women. To whom? He had video cameras all over that island, you know. 
Anyway, Wall Street Journal continues. Um, J.P. Morgan said the filing, Virgin Islands protected Epstein, fostering the perfect conditions for Epstein's criminal conduct to continue undetected rather than stop him, they helped him. Former U.S. Virgin Islands First Lady DeJong did not immediately reply to requests for comments. Spokeswoman for the Territory's Attorney General said Thursday, J.P. Morgan Chase has cherry-picked and mischaracterized Epstein's interactions with U.S. Virgin Islands officials and residents in an attempt to distract and shift blame away from its role in facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's heinous crimes. Epstein, of course, pleaded guilty to solicitation of prostitution with a minor in 2008, spent about 13 months in prison. He was on like a work release, what, 12, 13 hours a day, right? J.P. Morgan t- continued providing services to Epstein until 2013 when it says it closed his accounts. So after he was already pleaded guilty, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, on Monday, J.P. Morgan settled a similar lawsuit agreeing to pay Epstein's alleged victims $290 million, so that got out. At the center of J.P. Morgan's claims is DeJong, who worked for Epstein, including during the time her husband, John DeJong, served as governor of the U.S. Territory from 2007 to 2015. Former First Lady had worked for Epstein since at least 2000, was paid an annual salary that grew to more than 100000 and 50000 to cover tuition for children's schools, according to the documents. DeJong ran Epstein's business operations, helped him navigate relationships with the territory's immigration and law enforcement officials. That's what the court papers show. She also solicited political donations from him, according to the documents. DeJong wrote to Epstein in December of 2014, It is important to me that you know that I take this job, my management of your team, and our implementation of your request very seriously and that they be done in the most confidential of ways. That's in the court filings. She didn't want to get out, you know. DeJong helped get visas for several alleged victims of Epstein. J.P. Morgan says in its court filings, she connected one woman to a local immigration lawyer and worked to get other to get others student visas by arranging special classes for them at the University of the Virgin Islands, according to the bank. Yeah, I don't think they were women if they are underage. Maybe call them girls, right? DeJong helped arrange and enroll Epstein victims in an English as a second language or ESL course at the university, according to emails she sent to university staff and Epstein. DeJong wrote to Epstein in June of 2013, according to court filings, they are structuring the class around the ladies. Please let me know so that they know what to do or not to do. Five years after he pleaded guilty, DeJong told university staff that the cost of the course, almost $9,000, would be covered. Two students would need a particular type of student visa, she told university staff. That same year, Epstein donated 20000 to the university through one of his companies, J.P. Morgan said in its filing. DeJong also made a case for why she and her team should receive bonuses. She wrote, in 14 years... We have not had a bad audit, and we ensure that you have the best relationships with local regulators and departments. In 2014, DeJong solicited political donations from Epstein and his employees for the congressional campaign of, oh, Stacey Plaskett, who was ultimately elected 
as U.S. representative, according to the court filings. Stacey Plaskett said in a statement, Jeffrey Epstein's conduct was despicable. As I stated in the past, contributions made by Jeffrey Epstein to my campaign were donated to women and children-focused nonprofits in the Virgin Islands. Anybody hear about um, Stacey Plaskett's slip of the tongue recently? I'll get to that in a minute. But it gets even deeper about uh, Epstein and the former First Lady of the UK Virgin Islands. Lawandcrime.com has the article. Will it work for you? Ex-Virgin Islands First Lady allegedly ran suggested language for sex offender law by Jeffrey Epstein. Three years after pleading guilty to soliciting prosecution of a minor, Jeffrey Epstein had the ear of the wife of the then Virgin Islands governor in attempting to craft sex offender legislation that wouldn't put too much of a crimp on his, Jeffrey Epstein's, lifestyle. That's one of the latest scorching allegations in a legal brief filed by J.P. Morgan Chase, which is trying to turn the tables of the Virgin Islands government. Now, that was left out of the Wall Street Journal, but we got over here at lawandcrime.com, right? Since late last year, the Virgin Islands has tried to hold the behemoth financial institution, J.P. Morgan Chase, liable for knowingly profiting from Epstein's sex trafficking conspiracy, J.P. Morgan's most potent defense against the allegations has been a counteroffensive, the latest of which reveals alleged communications between Epstein and former Virgin Islands First Lady Cecile de Jong from 2011. Yes, indeed, May of 2011, the Virgin Islands legislature considered amending sex offender monitoring laws, and the bank quoted DeJong running the proposed language by Epstein. DeJong wrote to Epstein, according to the, the brief in court, this is the suggested language. Will it work for you? The sex offender allegedly replied, we should add out of country for more than seven days, otherwise I could not go for a day trip to Tortola at the last minute referring to the largest isle on the British Virgin Islands. Epstein also fretted the statute's transparency provisions could make certain information accessible by the press, according to the filing. He wrote, If we're not careful, a list of who I stay with should violate my privacy, restrict my business and livelihood. DeJong allegedly responded that she didn't want to email back and forth before describing the hurried timetable for the legislation. J.P. Morgan Chase claims that the then Virgin Islands First Lady wasn't just an ally of Epstein, but a paid manager of the Virgin Islands companies that he owned, receiving salary, bonuses, and other benefits. Wall Street Journal's got that, too. They got that part. Epstein and his then personal attorney, Maria Hodge, also lobbied the Virgin Islands Department of Justice and the Attorney General's office with apparently disappointing results for the wealthy sex offender, according to the filing. DeJong apologized to Epstein after the law's passage in June of 2011. She said, I know this was a horrible week, and I'm really sorry about how things panned out. Not being able to take someone at their word is incredibly frustrating. However, all is not lost, and we will figure something out by coming up 
with a game plan to get around these obstacles. J.P. Morgan says that plan involved getting then-Virgin Islands senators involved to facilitate Epstein's easy travel to and from the territory. J.P. Morgan has fought tenaciously to rid itself of liabilities and the torrent of bad press that came with it in connection with its association with Epstein. Again, the bank reached a $290 million settlement to resolve a class-action lawsuit filed anonymously by an Epstein survivor averting a potentially... No, 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 it was a group of survivors. Averting a potentially embarrassing trial that would have put the alleged conduct of J.P. Morgan executives under the public glare. Attorney Brad Edwards, known for his representation of Epstein survivors, credited assistance from the Virgin Islands government for helping to reach the deal. That's all well and good. That's all well and good. But... Stacy Plaskett, that name came up. And um, she said something recently that really should get her in a lot of trouble. But I bet it won't. And I don't know if you heard about this. She was on the Sunday show with Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC. Uh, just yesterday, June 18th. And she was talking about Trump. And again, this is the the delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands. So she doesn't really get to vote in the U.S. House, but she gets to be part of the show, as it were. Check it out. Here she is. Having Trump not only have had the codes, but now having the classified information for Americans and being able to put that out and share it in his resort with anyone and everyone who comes through should be terrifying to all Americans. Mm -hmm. And he needs to be shot. Stopped. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Needs to be shot. I mean, she corrected herself pretty quickly. But man. Freudian slip, she's going to get away with it. She's going to get away with it. Mayor Garland's not going to say anything. Christopher Ray's not going to say anything. FBI's not going to go visit her. Secret Service, uh-uh, nope. See, Trump still has Secret Service protection the rest of his life, just like all the other former presidents. You can't, you can't, um, you can't threaten a former president or a current president or any of that stuff. Look, I can't stand Barack Obama. Um, he was awful. I think he set out to try to destroy this country. But I'll tell you one thing. I was doing a local talk radio down in Panama City, Florida. And this uh, Islamic jihadist uh, imam over there in the uh, West Bank, you know, Israel, uh, called for him to be killed. And I said, Brock, you know, you got to launch a cruise missile on that guy and take him out. I mean, you, you like to launch missiles anyway in the Mideast, right? This guy just threatened your life. You ought to take him out. He's got nothing to do. It's the office when it comes to that. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to respect the office. I was disappointed that Barack didn't do that. But anyway, Stacy Plaskett, U.S. delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands, she said what she said. Should be terrifying to all Americans, mm-hmm. and he needs to be shot, stopped. No, no, 
How can you say, oh, that was just a slip of the tongue? No. No, man. That's, um, anyway, I just figured it was my responsibility to share that with you because, I mean, that's jacked up, in my humble opinion. And you're entitled to it. Now, it's that time again. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. The big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. And uh, Dementia Joe, Joe Biden. Thank you to uh, RNC Research. Was out there lying about guns again. I know you're shocked that uh, the guy who sometimes has a, is at a desk in the Oval Office would be lying about anything. But Dementia Joe out there lying about pistol braces. Made it harder for people to buy stabilized braces. Put a pistol on a brace, it turns into a gun. Makes it more, you can have a higher caliber weapon, a higher caliber bullet coming out of that gun. How stupid is that? Turns a pistol into a gun. You use a pistol brace, you have a higher caliber caliber bullet coming out. So the great Dana Lash, talk show host, used to be out of St. Louis, now out of Dallas. She said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard a politician say about guns. A plastic brace on a gun does not change the caliber of the gun or the rate of fire. Thank you, Dana Lash. Great tweet of the day there. Thank you to Mitch Ward and the crew at Red River Auto for sponsoring today's tweet of the day on the Doc Washburn Show. You've been listening to episode 394 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor at the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Well, that's the way it is. Monday, June 19th, 2023.